BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, June 5th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and on inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone, why not a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home, and you don't have to be a tech genius to install and use it. Lights, locks, thermostats, security. With SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app on your phone. To get 10% off your choice of either their home security, energy saver, or water detection kits, go to smartthings.com slash minds. Once again, that's smartthings.com slash minds. To help keep this show free, we work with some great advertisers. And one of the reasons advertisers love Inquiring Minds is that they know the show has amazing listeners. About once a year, we run a listener survey to help demonstrate this to advertisers. With that in mind, we have an all-new survey that we'd like you to go to and do just that. Go to podsurvey.com slash minds. The survey will only take five minutes, and we're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you'd like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken one of our previous surveys, I'd like to ask you to take this new one. It's been completely revised, and advertisers like it when we have the most up-to-date answers. Plus, you also have a chance to win that $100 gift card. So once again, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y podsurvey.com slash minds. Thank you so much for your help. This month, we're going to be exploring emergent technologies with local manufacturers, leaders in the space, to really understand how... These new technologies are shaping how society is going to change in the future. So for our first episode, we wanted to explore drones. And we both felt that it was really important to try out the different technologies that we were going to be talking about, not to endorse one product or another, but simply so that we get the hands-on experience and that can inform the conversation on how these technologies can change society. Our first interview was Eric Cheng. He's a Taiwanese-American entrepreneur and professional photographer. He specializes in aerial and underwater photography. He's the director of aerial imaging at a company called DJI. They're the makers of the popular Phantom Aerial Imaging Quadcopter, otherwise known as a drone. And he also owns and publishes WetPixel. It's an underwater photography community website. And he plays the cello. 
We first came across Eric uh, by watching Good Morning America. Back in February, he piloted a DJI Inspire One drone into a volcano that was erupting in Iceland. And he broadcasted this live for Good Morning America. And it's pretty amazing. The footage of the volcano is unbelievable. It is so uh, beautiful and stunning to see. And it had never been done before. I, I felt like when I saw the clip, it was entering a, a hidden world that was just unavailable. And uh, it was just amazing the trials and tribulations that that drone had to go to through just to get to the volcano. I can't imagine humans having to ever overcome that. So that'll be our interview for this week. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about an amazing discovery that happened in biology or medicine or any of the sciences really um, this week. So in my biological psychology class at the University of San Francisco, I tell my students that when it comes to the function of the immune system, the brain is not like any other part of your body. So just to oversimplify things a little bit, one way in which the immune system works is by finding cells that aren't doing their jobs properly. Maybe they're infected, maybe they're cancerous, maybe they're simply foreign, and eliminating them. Mass genocide, you could say. And most cells in the body divide and replicate and turn over many, many times in your lifespan, so it's not a big deal if they get killed. But since brain cells contain traces of your accumulated experiences and learning, you don't really want them to turn over. I mean, a skin cell is a skin cell, but a neuron in your brain might be part of a circuit that allows you to remember the best date you ever went on or which foods you're allergic to or some other important information that at some point you've come across in your lifespan. So no offense to skin cells, but they're replaceable. Brain cells, not so much. So you don't want your immune system going in there and destroying all that high school physics that you worked so hard to memorize. So for many decades and until like practically this week, neuroscientists thought that if you see immune system activity in the brain, something must be terribly wrong. There must be a serious infection or something that would make it worthwhile to get the immune system involved. And they weren't even really sure exactly how immune cells and other aspects of the immune system actually got into and out of the brain. There didn't seem to be a direct connection between the brain and the immune system so that, you know, these nasty ninja cells, for example, don't go out of control on brain cells. Then this week, Jonathan Kipnis's lab at the University of Virginia School of Medicine published a landmark paper in the journal Nature describing a previously unknown part of our anatomy. Now, I can't emphasize enough how amazing this is. I mean, we used to think that the lymphatic system does a lot of things, of course, but one function that it does is to drain unwanted substances from organs, but that it didn't reach the brain. Um, but Kipnis's postdoc, Antoine Louveau, developed a method of looking at the meninges, these are the coverings of the brain between the brain and the skull, on a single slide. And all of a sudden, they found this direct link between the immune system and the brain through the meningeal lymphatic vessels. They, say, of course, made the discovery first in rodents, but it seems to be the case that it's, it's in all, all mammals. So it's early days, but this discovery could have major implications on how we approach neurological diseases that might have an immune component like multiple sclerosis, for example. That's an obvious way in which we might see um, treatment and, and uh, development of, of the understanding of mechanisms of disease change. But what's also exciting is that this kind of immune system function might play a role in the healthy brain 
So we previously thought it only got involved in a sick brain, but maybe some of the mechanisms of diseases like Alzheimer's disease could have to do with a malfunctioning of this system. So in Alzheimer's disease, one of the problems is that these big chunks of proteins accumulate in the brain, and eventually they cause the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And we still don't really understand how and why they accumulate in one brain but not another. So maybe what's happening, again, this is pure speculation, but maybe what's happening is that something about this lymphatic vessel system is going awry. And if we can understand how these different cells and and, um, molecules get transferred between the brain and other parts of the body, maybe we can start to understand some mechanisms about diseases like Alzheimer's that we haven't yet thought of. I came across this article because on Twitter, a neuroscientist I follow just wrote the word woe and linked to this, um, the, the article describing this discovery. So I don't think it can be understated how fundamentally uh, ground shifting this discovery can be. Uh, but to back up before you get to the implications for disease, I'm wondering if this technique can be applied to uh, study potentially other areas where we thought the lymphatic system might not be going, but could be going now. It is kind of amazing that we are seeing this this scale of a discovery. I mean, most of us thought that the body was mapped, you know, at least 50 to 100 years ago. Um, so to have this kind of discovery come about now in 2015 is really kind of shocking, but it's also really exciting. So one of the things I love about this discovery is the fact that it seems to be made primarily by the technological leap that a, gra- a postdoc, um, Antoine Laveau, has made. And, you know, this is like Nobel Prize winning stuff, uh, potentially. Um, we don't know the implications yet, but I could see it being s- such uh, a case. And here you have a postdoc who's actually getting the credit that he deserves um, for discovering a new way of looking at the meninges and discovering this vessel system. I still think it's just fundamentally fascinating that in 2015, we discovered a new aspect of our anatomy, not function, anatomy. Uh, and, the, and what that potentially uh, means about how much we understand about the whole human body system is remarkable. I mean, I figured that we would learn a lot more about what's happening inside the brain, for example, or what different heart cells do in terms of how they signal. But I didn't think that we'd actually discover a piece of our anatomy that was yet left unknown. That was, I think, what's really surprising. Well, speaking of right place at the right time, we know scientists have been using ice cores for a number of years to study the uh, effects of climate change, from polar uh, ice cores to studying ice in terms of its formation at the tops of mountains. And that's because when ice forms, it forms these like little air pockets that trap the you know atmosphere and the debris therein at that time. It gives you a good sort of window into history. Uh, but how do we store all of these ice cores? You would think, oh, let's just dump them into a freezer. But not all freezers are created equal. Uh, A lot of times what's important to these ice cores is that we maintain the temperature at which they were cored so we can study them for future years. One of the main repositories for these ice cores is a basically an ice cave in the Alps. And what they found is the temperature inside this this center has risen 1.5 degrees Celsius in the last 11 years due to global warming. And so they are sort of you know, uh, slightly panicked, like, where do we take these ice cores so that we don't damage this repository of information? Uh, so what scientists have done, a team of, of uh, French and uh, Swiss scientists have established a base in Antarctica. 
uh, in the coldest place in the earth uh, to create a freezer that's essentially negative 50 degrees Celsius uh, to store these samples um, for hundreds and thousands of years into the future. There's similar repositories um, elsewhere around the world, but nothing that gets down to that uh, to that temperature. And, and really what they what they say, the, the whole point of this is, is we don't know what the importance of these ice cores are and they won't be around in another 10, 15, 20 years. So we need to make sure that we preserve them. I also read in one of the articles that the scientists uh, were describing this as a kind of a unique phenomenon that, you know, their data is sort of melting away. But, you know, in other places, like, for example, the coral reefs, although the reefs might be dying, the reefs themselves are still going to be there for a while for scientists to study. But I actually think that that's not really how a lot of science works. I mean, I think data get lost all the time for different reasons. And, you know, especially in terms of biodiversity, I mean, there are species that we haven't even found yet, especially in the insect world, um, that are probably going extinct without us even knowing it. So I actually don't think this is a problem that is unique to this particular um, scientific endeavor. One of the things I don't understand about this particular um, strategy of, you know, putting the ice in Antarctica is why they don't just find a really cold room somewhere and stick it there. Uh, that's what uh, scientists in the UK did. And they can uh, pretty much keep their temperature at the facility that's in the UK at about negative 40 degrees or negative 30 degrees, somewhere in that range. Uh, but that a lot of the glacial ice cores they're taking from the poles are at minus 50 degrees. So they needed a place that was colder than um, facilities that are available to them. But you know what I think about? And maybe this is just my sort of manic thinking. This has got to be the worst job in science that you get assigned to the minus 50 degree facility in a cave in Antarctica. That does not sound like fun. I guess maybe if Amazon drone comes along, that would be your way of getting stuff and materials to it. But that does not sound like an ideal place for me to work. Yeah, I suppose that's another argument to make sure that someone's working on some AI, some robots that can actually do those tasks for us. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Eric Chang. This episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home. You don't have to be a tech genius to install and use it. That's why they were named one of the top 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time Magazine. SmartThings instantly turns your normal home into a smart home. And I'm especially excited as a parent how I'll be able to use SmartThings to track how my child enters the home, exits the home, and even turn off lights automatically when it's time to go to sleep. Right now, SmartThings is offering its three most popular kits at a discount for our listeners. You can get 10% off either the Home Security, Energy Saver, or Water Detection Kit when you go to smartthings.com slash minds. It's a perfect way to get started with a smart home. For 10% off and free domestic shipping, go to smartthings.com slash minds. That's smartthings.com slash minds. This episode is sponsored by Ernest. Did you know you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make the whole process incredibly easy to manage? Ernest has created the first radically flexible refinancing experience that can save you thousands on your student loans and put you back in control of your payment terms. Their product helps customers save an average of more than $12,500 with rates starting as low as 1.9% APR. Ernest never chart. Char- Ernest never charges any fees. That means no penalties for paying off your loan quickly and no charges for origination or changing your terms down the line. You can set your own terms, change your payment amount and date, and even skip a payment, all with just a few clicks at meetearnest.com. 
Ernest can do this because they're a new kind of lender, one that looks at things traditional banks don't, like your potential, to give you the lowest possible rates. Ernest will never pass you off to a third party. Their on-site team is your customer service partner for the life of your loan. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you could save, and they have a special offer for our listeners. You get $150 cash back when you refinance through meetearnest.com slash minds. Don't get stuck paying more than you have to. Check out meetearnest.com slash minds to take control and quickly see your personalized rates today. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Eric Cheng. Thanks. It's great to be here. I want to tell our listeners exactly where we are. We are on the top of Mount Davidson in San Francisco. We have a gorgeous view of the city on one side and South San Francisco on another. It's a beautiful morning. And in my hands, I'm holding a little white drone. (laughs) Yes, a little white drone. And Eric, a minute ago, you said something that no one has ever said to me before, which is just don't grab the gimbal. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell our listeners what exactly is it that I'm holding and what is a gimbal? Yes, you, you're holding a DJI Phantom 3 professional quadcopter. So we, we sell it as a quadcopter, um, although they're known as drones, generally. Um, and it's, uh, it's about three pounds, and it flies, and it has an amazing camera, stabilized camera on it. So this is sort of the, you know, the, the third generation of these drones that are swe- sweeping across the world, allowing people to capture low-altitude imagery relatively affordably for the first time. Drone has a negative connotation for a lot of people. People think that it's, it you know, is, is either going to create accidents that will result in injury or death to other human beings or that you know, we're being surveyed. So tell me a little bit about what, you know, where, where does this come from, this notion that a drone is a bad thing, and, and why do you call yours a drone? Drones are, the word drone is generic. It's really a generic term. It's just that we've mostly seen it used in the military in, in recent history. If you go back, um, well, actually, pretty much from, from the birth of the word, you know, used in this context, it was, it was all military. So what we're seeing now for the first time is generalized use cases, in many cases for good, um, tied to the word drone. And so what we found, even though you know, historically it might have a negative, negative connotation, is that it becomes a generic term for pretty much anyone who has any direct experience with one of the new consumer drones. So we, we use the word drone pretty much in media. It's very rarely used by the company or any company that produces these products. And I think we're just going to have to adapt to the word because it's, it's, been, it's become the word and really there aren't any good alternatives. So, you know, for the last maybe 30, 40, even more years, we've had remote-controlled toys, right? Um, we've had remote-controlled model airplanes. My dad used to fly those. And you know, I remember being a kid and playing with these remote-controlled toys. But this seems like something qualitatively different. So what, is, what has been the big leap, either, you know, in terms of the science or the technology that has now created this product? Well, if you talk to anyone who flew remote-controlled planes or helicopters, uh, kind of in you know when they first started hitting the market or being built by hobbyists at home, they have a lot of stories about crashing. And you, well, we still we still hear stories about crashing, um, but we don't hear as many. You know, for the most part, people are successful with these products. And what's happened is that basically computers have become computers and sensors have become small enough to be incorporated into these drones uh, as kind of as integrated electronics. So, you know, the big difference is that we are now kind of fundamentally stabilized and GPS, uh, using GPS for position hold. So there are two kinds of stabilizations these drones do. One is inertial stabilization. So they'll, you know, there's an inertial measurement unit that measures gravity and says, okay, I am level. Please keep me level. That's basically what it does. And the 
flight controller reads these, the sensor data and asks the motors to do whatever is necessary to keep the drone level. So that, that's how they stay level. And the way they stay in place is that they have additional sensors, which are positioning sensors. That would be GPS, barometers, and ultrasonic, uh, also optical flow cameras. So more and more sensors are being put into these drones. And in the same way that your, your phone knows exactly where you are and what orientation it's in, the drone does as well. So that's the fundamental difference. We, now there's a lot of autonomy going on behind the scenes so that when you you know, take off, it's actually it's doing a lot, but you don't see any of it. All you see is that the drone lifts off and stays in the same place. And so that's, is that why you chose, or the industry has gone towards a helicopter model rather than a airplane model that you know, would have to have a runway and kind of get air that way? Yeah, so planes also are are uh, improving very quickly using this technology. But as you just mentioned, you do need, you need a runway or you need to launch it somehow. And of course, landing is much more difficult. So the helicopter model, specifically a quadcopter model or anything with, with more than four blades, so quadcopters, hexacopters with six, octocopters with eight, um, these were chosen because there are very few moving parts. If you take a quadcopter, if you take the gimbal, which we, <laughs> we mentioned earlier today, the gimbal is a stabilizing system of a camera. So that has a lot of moving parts. But the rest of the quadcopter, if you'll notice, basically only has four moving parts, the four motors and the propellers. And that quadcopter design, so two are counter-rotating, so two rotate clockwise and two rotate counterclockwise. And so that way we can, you know, you basically you don't have, a t- you don't need a tail rotor, which you, you need in a traditional helicopter. You can spin all four up at the same time. You don't get any rotation as a result. If you spin two on one side, they counter-rotate so you don't get any rotation, but then you get pitch and you get roll that way, and you get yaw by spinning the two that spin counterclockwise or clockwise faster. So you can, you can do all of the movements you need to fly without, you know, without additional movement. So, and I remember, you know, my dad's biggest frustration was the landing. I mean, he would, you know, spend all this time building an airplane, and then he'd, you know, take it out for a flight, and he'd get it up just fine, but then it would crash upon landing, and that would, of course, be very upsetting. So how do these things land, and, and how is it that prevents these um, devices from crashing the way model airplanes used to? Well, I think there are two features that help landing tremendously. I mean, the first, of course, is is that it's a helicopter, and it has very fine altitude control. So what what DJI and some other companies did pretty early on is uh, is virtualize all the controls. So, you know, we have a throttle stick still, and people call it, you know, like, give it more throttle. You're not actually giving it more throttle. You're asking the drone to go up or to go down. So we have very fine control. As, you see, as you'll see when we start flying, um, you can descend really, really slowly and just touch down for a perfect landing, even if you have no experience with, with flying these things. Um, the second thing is that because of all these sensors, we actually know how high above the ground we are. So you can ask the quadcopter to fly home and land itself, and it will. So it'll fly back exactly to launch point or to wherever you happen to be, and it will just uh, descend and land by itself. So can we, can we let it fly? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm holding it in my hands. So you, what do I do now? Put it on the ground? Put it on the ground first. Okay, I yeah. won't grab the gimbal. You can do it. Okay. <laughs> yes, don't grab the gimbal. Okay. okay and we're going to start it up. So um, uh, we'll turn the, I'm holding a remote control in my hand. Yeah. This looks like a traditional RC uh, control. So it's got two sticks and a bunch of buttons on it. Uh-huh. Um, and I, there's an iPad attached to it. It's cabled, um, and we have a bunch of antennas. So I'm going to turn the radio on here, and then I'll turn the quadcopter on. And so is there an app on the iPad that, you know, you use, or, whoa, what was that? 
Just startup don't turn sound. It on. Yeah, that's our startup <laughs> sound. Okay. Um, yes, there is an app on the iPad or an Android device that you use, and this app we're looking at now, and you can see people in it. Um, there's a live video stream from the drone that comes to the the app. It's in 720p. It's in HD. So before we actually let this thing go, is this legal? What we're doing right now? Well, flying for hobby is legal, um, and we've certainly done a lot of interviews and demos.、Um, but flying commercially, explicitly, is in a gray area. So it depends who you ask.、And、many people are doing it anyway, but FAA says it's illegal to illegal to fly commercially. But wait, I mean, commercially, I think of you're taking on passengers. Clearly, there are no passengers. So what do you mean by flying commercially? It means that you gain. So someone is paying you, or you gain in some other way. Oh,、That's、I see. So、means. if we were actually. Selling video that we take with this drone—that's where the gray area is. Right, and media right now is、uh, is especially interesting because there was a、um, a bulletin released last week by the FAA saying if you are a media organization, you cannot fly commercially right now, but、mm. you can use footage taken by hobbyists if they did not intend for it to be commercial when they captured it. I see. So, well, luckily this is an audio-only podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is an audio-only <laughs> podcast. But it's really interesting because it actually changes every few months now. You know, so policy is something that we in the U.S. are racing to try to get figured out because they've figured out virtually everywhere else in the world. So in most in most places on the planet, you can get certified to fly one of these commercially and then fly commercially. Here, we have to go through an exemption process because the only rules are for manned aviation. So you have to get exempted from all the things that you need to do、uh, from a manned perspective, manned flight perspective. Um, in order to fly commercially, so people are flying commercially legally in the U.S. It's just that the path is very long right now. And so, do you have to get like you know, if you want to pilot a small plane here, you have to have a pilot's license, and there's a whole series of things you need to go. Do you need a license essentially to fly a drone? And is there a test you have to take? So, <laughs> if you're a hobbyist, you don't have to do anything. Huh? If you want to fly commercially, you need a pilot's license, and you need all a, a giant list of other things that that you you need if you're flying commercially as a pilot. Wow. So it's it's certainly broken right now, but it's getting a lot better.、Uh, there's a lot of progress, but it you know it could still be a year or more before regulation is actually in place. So do you have a license, Eric?、Uh, I do not. Oh,、um, so we're hobbyists. Yes, we are absolutely <laughs> hobbyists.、It. I mean, manufacturing and testing is sort of an interesting area, and it's you know we get uncomfortable when we start talking about it.、Um, yeah, I can see. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah,、um, but a lot actually a lot of companies are in this situation because there are tons. I mean, look in San Francisco, we have. Dozens of drone companies, and then we have big companies in the U.S. like Amazon, Google. You know, they're all working on this, and they're all sort of trying to get exemptions. Some have gotten exemptions,、um, and they do as much testing as they can indoor, or、mm. they go overseas、mm. to do it. So it's really not a good situation for us. I mean, we're Chinese headquartered, so luckily we do all the testing in China.、Mm. Um, but of course, the U.S. is our biggest market. Europe is Europe, and is our second biggest market. Western world is a big market,、mm. uh, and uh, And, and people are using them actually commercially. You know, even though we don't sell a commercial product,、mm-hmm. our products are in like 40% of Section 333 exemptions, which is that、mm-hmm. exemption process. So I think we could do a whole podcast if we wanted on regulation. There's、sure. a lot of interest、um, to use drones, you know, because the efficiency gains are so amazing. Yeah. No. So I mean, I it's it's just another example of technology and science outpacing you know our policy and ethics decisions. So、right. let's table that for the moment. Let's get this thing up. So what do、okay. we do now? So we could、uh, take off manually, but I'm going to take off automatically. Okay. okay. So there's a button here that is our takeoff button. When I push it, it asks us to swipe to confirm that we want to take off, 
And oh my god, it, my 16 month old could swipe that thing. He, he could, we could ask him <laughs> to come over here right now. Um, so it, it will go to 1.2 meters and hover by itself. Okay, so I'm okay. going to slide to take off, left to right. Whoa, okay, there it goes. So now we're hovering at 1.2 meters. Uh-huh. And there's actually, there's quite a bit of wind here uh, that's, that's gusting. And right. Gusting winds are the worst because if it's uh, constant wind, it's the same as, you know, no wind, basically. But it's really just hovering there in the same spot. I mean, it's moving around a little bit, but... Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's dealing with this wind really well. So that's wow. GPS, ultrasonic, optical flow, and barometer. Wow. And, uh, you know, IMU also. So lots of different sensors going on. Uh, should I move it away from us so yeah, we can talk? Yeah, let's, let's, send, let's send it away. Okay, so first I'm going to hit record. Okay, let's send it sort of off Mount Davidson a little bit. All right, so how do you, now how do you decide where to send it? There it goes. Well, all of the, the flight decisions that I'm making are, are creative because I'm flying manually. Okay, um, you know, I see. So what I want to do is, is get some perspective of Mount Davidson. I don't want to fly uh, over too, uh, too much of an urban area. You know, so uh -huh. we have houses down there. I'm not going to fly over those. But I've backed off a little bit, and now you can see this view of us standing on top of, oh, uh, wow. on top of Mount Davidson. It's kind of meta. You know, we're like it, it <laughs> filming the drone, filming us. And it's completely stable. You know, it's, uh, you can see that it looks like a still image, except that we're moving. So that's the major innovation that these kinds of unmanned aerial vehicles have given us, right? Is that the ability to take stable video in places that a person cannot go. Is that correct? Uh, right, that's right. And specifically, low-altitude aerial. You know, uh -huh. that's a totally unexplored realm. I mean, if you... So we can hear that there's a helicopter in the background. It yeah. appears there's something going on out there. So there's a right. helicopter hovering. Um, it's way out there, and it, it actually shouldn't go very low. I mean, they can go very low, uh -huh. but typically they're up pretty high in, in the sky. And, you know, a drone can hover at 20 feet and, and capture something that is actually out of, it's out of range for us. As photographers, it's very, it's very common for us to want to get just a little bit higher to see something. Uh -huh. you know, or if there was something up you know, in one of these trees near us, you know, we could very easily go up and take a look and see what it is. But so what's the, but you know, I guess I've seen a lot of photography obviously taken from the, you know, from helicopter, right? A person is, that's manned, a person is holding a camera. And the difference here is that in places where a helicopter would be too dangerous to send a helicopter, a drone can go. Yeah, so danger is certain one of, certainly one of the things that drones are, are being used for. They're relatively inexpensive, and if one goes down, it's not likely to cause any damage, right. or not very much damage anyway. Yeah, a little three-pound thing is really... Yeah, yeah. So, so safety is one thing. Cost is, is sort of the main reason in the commercial sector drones are, are being studied so much or being used, because you know, if you have to send a person up in a helicopter, it's very expensive. If you have to send someone to climb something, there's, again, there's safety, sure. and there's the cost of that, that employee liability going insurance. up. Liability <laughs> Yeah, so, so drones are used there. And, and the, so the efficiency gains are very often kind of exponential in multiple axes. Uh -huh. you know, so there are some industries like stockpile analysis or something where it might take weeks, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and an army to figure out just the volume of your, your stockpile. Now we send one of these things up. It does an autonomous 3D map, uh, and you just ask how much volume there is in this area. Uh -huh. And so how much does that thing cost? Um, so our, the Phantom 3s are running uh, either 999 or 1259. Wow. So that's, and that's a huge that decrease in price. That includes the camera? Yeah, that includes everything you see except for the, the tablet. Wow. So you just plug the tablet in and fly. I mean, my GoPro cost half that. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a big change happening. You know, the, what's happening now is cameras are starting to become integrated fundamentally into these devices. And, and the radio I'm holding here has all sorts of manual controls. I mean, if I push this button here, 
it takes a picture. Huh. You know, so, and if I push this other one, it starts and stops video. Video, right. So they're starting to feel much more like cameras that happen to not be in your hands than they are drones that carry cameras. And right. I think the Phantom 3 for us is the model that did that. You know, because before we were working, you know, they carried, they either carried GoPros or they carried cameras that were a little bit earlier for us. You know, we hadn't figured out integration yet. And, and this is kind of the next big step. So I can understand why this might be of use for commercial purposes, but I'm really interested in this explosion of scientific uses for mm -hmm. these kinds of devices. So can you tell me a little bit about maybe a couple of um, science projects that you guys have been consulted on or worked with? Um, where scientists have been able to collect data using one of these devices that they never would have been otherwise. Yeah, actually, there there are two examples from our our recent history, which really started as media kind of media projects. You know, one was um, a flight over a volcano in Iceland, uh, which I did with Good Morning America, and we're actually out in Vietnam now doing another piece on caves. Um, and so, actually, being able to being able to fly inside a cave is pretty unusual. You know, nobody thinks of doing that. Um, and actually being able to fly out of, say, the mouth of a cave and being able to see the surrounding area, in a very, in, and these are very remote areas, uh, would have taken an airplane before. So what, what's happening is on all of the media trips that we've been doing, we've had scientists. Scientists are always there because, you know, the locations are interesting from a scientific perspective. Um, but they are absolutely fascinated by what's possible. You know, kind of one-touch autonomous 3D mapping will change everything. Survey is just given now. You can just survey anything you want in 3D without... Surveyors. <laughs> yes, I saw some of the video of um, you manning uh, the drone in Iceland over the volcano, and footage is kind of amazing. And so that would be a you know a great example of a place where it's just too dangerous. I mean, there's one, and we can put it up for our listeners um, on our uh, Tumblr page. We can, uh, access to these link videos, but you can actually in one point see that the camera of the drone got so close to the lava that it melted, and you had you know so that's like clearly right. you could never send a person <laughs> nearly that close. And you know, as, as I was watching the video, I thought it was really cool, but I didn't quite grasp the significance until we talked a little bit later about, about really it's the stability of the image that is remarkable. Right, right. So, I mean, a volcano is kind of the worst. First of all, the, the other environmental factors, like not the heat part, but, you know, we're, we're in Iceland in winter. There's a lot of wind and snow. And you cross this kind of frozen barrier to a melting barrier, you know, like an area where things actually, all the plastic melted on the drones. Um, and... During that whole time, the video looks like it's looks like someone's flying with a Steadicam. You know, it is absolutely completely smooth, and that's because all all drones now basically have have gimbals, which are they use brushless motors. So many, many hundreds of times a second, the drone is asking the gimbal to keep the camera level. So in the same way that the drone is leveled by the motors, the camera also has an IMU, an inertial measurement unit, and it wants to stay level. You know, we measure gravity. We say this is level. Please keep me level. Huh. And so what is the big innovation in terms of the gimbal? Is it just, you know, is, is it a, as a particular part? Is it the way that it's put together? Is it, a, what's the advance? Or is that something that you can't talk about because it's protected by your company? <laughs> no, no, I absolutely can. Um, I, the, the advance is that people moved from servos to brushless motors. So brushless motors are, are precise and have to a lot of torque. Uh, they can be moved very quickly. And so, um, you know, a servo, there's always lag and they're slow, although some new servos are, are pretty fast. Um, and so what happened was brushless motors were rewound to be high torque. So they, they're not moving a lot, but they're moving very quickly and powerfully. And um, there are three. There's one in each axis on, this, on this, uh, this quadcopter. And the same technology that allows the quadcopter to be stable is now allowing the camera to be stable. So it's basically 
you know, making it's, it's compensating for any movement from the wind or, you know, from the actual vehicle itself. Is that sort of like the way your eye muscles stabilize your eye? I mean, we see the world. Our eye movement, our, my eye muscles are moving all the time. Our eyeballs are actually moving all the time. And yet we see the world as stable. Is that the same kind of innovation? It, it's more like a chicken head. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, unpack that for us. Okay, so, well, if you look at it, if you... Well, first of all, go to YouTube and do a search for chicken head. Okay. Just, just do it because right. you'll be fascinated. But basically, birds have the best gimbals for their heads because they want stable vision when they're moving and flying. And if you take a chicken, if you hold a chicken by its body and you move its body around, the head will not move. And huh. that is exactly what we're doing, except instead of all these n muscles in the neck, we have three motors, one around each axis. Huh. And, you know, instead of a chicken brain, of course, we have a gimbal control unit. And, um, and you know, we j basically, if you notice that the platform is tilting, you just ask the motor to compensate in real time. Oh. So that's what's happening. That's really interesting, because I know that in terms of artificial intelligence, people have talked about the major limitation is that, you know, we can build a robot, but so far we haven't been able to come close to mimicking human vision. So essentially we're building blind robots. And here it seems like you're solving at least one of those problems, which is, you know, how do you make sure that the visual apparatus maintains, is stable while a thing is moving? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one reason I didn't like the eyeball analogy is that our eyeballs actually do move all the time. Sure. So our goal with the camera is to make it not move. Right. So I, see. I think the interpretation, the end, end result is the same, but our brain is kind of removing all that, right. all that noise. Right. So instead, yeah, instead of our eye muscles sort of, yeah, and, and, and sending signals to our brain, telling it exactly where they're moving so that it can compensate, you're actually saying, what if the eyeballs themselves were static and right. the rest of the head was moving? And that's the analogy that a chicken head. Really interesting. Right, that's right. So yeah. we've been kind of ignoring this drone back there. And <laughs> yeah. I have to say, there's a part of me that's a little creeped out by it. Because <laughs> it's just hanging out there and watching me. So um, first of all, you know, how long can it stay up there? What is it powered on? And you know, if it loses power, is it just going to fall and you know, hit my son who's frolicking in the meadow? <laughs> um, so they fly for, well, the Phantom 3 flies for about 23 minutes. We're finding right now that there's a sweet spot in all consumer drones, which is, which is about 20 minutes. Okay. Um, and they're powered by lithium polymer batteries, you know, the same batteries that are in our phones and computers. Um, and battery tech is is one of the things that has to improve the most for these to become useful for lots of applications, you know, kind of hour, hour plus flights. Um, when it starts to get low on battery, it will ask you whether you want it to come home or not. So it, because, you know, we, we have GPS built in, it knows where it took off and it knows where we're standing hmm. uh, based on the radio and, and your mobile device. Even if we moved, if we walked down to another part of the peak, would it know that now we've moved or would yeah. it go back to where it started? Yeah, so by default it goes back to where it started. And this, this again, this gets into some of the regulatory stuff. Like in some countries, uh, if there's a problem, if you lose, let's say we lose link, we lose mm -hmm. uh, radio communication, you have, it, it actually has to land where it is. And in some countries, it's okay for it to fly home autonomously and land. Oh, so this is, it gets a little more complicated here. But yes, it, you know, it does know where we are. It knows where it is. And on the map, it draws both points. You can see there's an arrow between huh. it and us, along with orientation. Um, the battery meters are also dynamic. So it knows, because it knows how far away it is, it knows how much energy is required to get home. So if we were flying, if we were flying a mile out, it would ask us a, a few minutes earlier. It would say, you should probably come home to make it home, you know, right. with plenty of battery left. So I guess my question then, of course, I think is that there's a fear that some of these drones, you know, we're going to lose them. They're going to they're going to fall. They're going to injure someone. So, wow, it's going really far now. 
Um, so, but you, you're saying that you've actually built in a lot of these safety guards to kind of bring it home. So, yeah. tell us about it, those. It's really hard to make a, a modern phantom uh, land or fall somewhere because you know we're constantly monitoring battery life, and it, it will come home to you. It'll come home and land itself, and it will start to descend by itself when it gets very low to, on battery. So, you literally have to override multiple things. You have to say, no, don't come home. No, don't come home. And you have to say, don't land. And then you have to throttle up all the way to try to keep it in the air. Hmm. So while it is possible, it's usually people who are being very deliberate about it um, right. who have problems. So it's unlikely that it would be an accidental um, thing, but rather that, you know, just like, you know, guns are misused by people, drones can be too. But um, in this case, you're, you're saying that there are safe, safeguards pulled in that if by accident, it's unlikely that it would actually harm someone. Yeah, it is, it is unlikely, um, but of course, that leaves a little bit of room for accidents to happen. So sure. there, there's, still, you know, there's still mechanical electronic devices um, that can have, can have problems. So you know, one, one of the things that, that we're trying to do, and other, of course, other companies in this space, is build in technological safeguards, as many as possible, to try to reduce any chance of accidents happening. All right, well, let's bring this puppy home. All right, let's bring it home. OK, so I'm going to hit Return to Home. Wow, that's just like one big button yeah. on your remote. That's pretty easy. Yes. It says go home. Bet you my son can do that. Yep. That's going to go up to 20 meters, which is our pre-programmed uh, height for going home. Oh, it's being checked out by a bird. Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Have you ever and had birds kind of try to interact with them? Yeah. So uh, certainly, you know, some hawks, some, some raptors, uh -huh. um, some other birds that are territorial There was a like hawk it. that I think lives yeah. in that tree over there. Yeah. We'll see if he... Um, so here it comes. You might be able to... Hear it, here it comes. Okay, so yeah, it's flying home exactly to where it took off from. And, yeah. um, and it's got these little red flashing lights. It looks like a little UFO. Yeah, and you can see the clouds zooming by above it. You know, they're actually, yeah. the wind is pretty strong up here. But it's really stable. It's just standing there. And now it's it coming, comes, it's coming, coming down. down. We can see the camera feed right here as it comes down. Yeah. Let's see where it lands. <laughs> Yeah, so how accurate is it? Is it going to land like exactly well, where it started or a meter away? Or The accuracy is based on GPS, and oh. GPS has an accuracy of a few meters. So wow. you can see we're pretty close. We're like three feet away or something. Yeah. Uh, we, just, well, there it is. we just created a little dust storm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Eric Tegg. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was an amazing day up on top of Mount Davidson, I have to say. And I have to ask, since we both flew the drones, what did you think of flying them? I actually thought it was pretty cool. What I was amazed at just how easy it was, I kind of expected it to be super complicated. I mean, you know, my like digital SLR camera is way more complicated than flying that drone. And the fact that my toddler could get it off the ground with like a swipe and, you know, a click is kind of amazing. So it was far easier than I thought. You know, it was easy too. I was nervous at first. My hands were shaking when I first started flying it. But then it was like video game controls. It was really easy to maneuver and fly around. And I think that's part of the attractiveness of this is that the barrier to entry is so low. I think I'm sure it takes a long time to get really good like Eric was at flying it. But it won't didn't seem like it would take forever to get just good and uh, functional at it. I mean, I actually suspect that probably if you 
if you wanted it to go to a specific place and you're, you know, fighting different aspects of the weather and, you know, wind currents and so forth, it could probably be a lot more complicated. But, you know, then it also has this GPS system that is such a fail safe. It'll just come back to you if you lose it somewhere, which I think is pretty amazing. So, yeah, I was kind of shocked at how at, at just how how well what what a huge step this was forward from you know kind of remote control planes and things like that and that in the end is what's exciting for the science part of this is that now we have something that's essentially cheap it's a thousand dollars but it's affordable for a lab to consider using for all sorts of maneuvers and the uh possible uses uh, are in uh numerous uh, but do you see this going beyond toy and actually penetrating lab environments? I I actually do, and I think it, the its usefulness is going to become you know even like kind of exponential in a sense because I I think that first off you know it is it is pretty cheap like a thousand dollars seems like not a lot of money for the amount of sort of technology and what it can do. I mean you know most of us have laptop computers that cost more than that. And I think in terms of science, like, yes, you know, a lot of science is done on a budget. But then if you think about some of the major scientific endeavors, I mean, these these grants are million dollar grants and just, you know, a thousand dollars only pays for two fMRI scans, you know, if you're lucky. So, you know, I don't think it's a huge investment compared to what it costs to send a human being into some of those places like the volcano erupting in Iceland. I mean, you never would have gotten that footage. But even things like, you know, sending them out to watch migrating whales. Um, I think it's a really cheap alternative compared to sending people, you know, field biologists out to those places. But the other thing that I think is really exciting about this technology is that it's not invasive the way it is to send a human being. And so I think one of the applications that, you know, is probably going to take off is trying to observe animals in their natural habitats um, kind of undisturbed. So, you know, yes, of course, if you're observing birds and you're sending in this drone, it's going to be disturbing. But, you know, if you're looking at um, lions in the savannah, for example, you can get a lot closer to them and they probably would behave very similarly in the presence of the drone. Whereas if you sent humans on a Jeep, I mean, that you're going to alter their behavior just by the way in which you observe them. Yeah, I was recently talking to some researchers at the California Academy of Sciences who are using drones to monitor uh, uh, organisms that live in the canopies of the rainforest, orangutans, sloths, all sorts of different creatures. And they're able to do these really fast surveys of how they're moving around, partially because of how nimble the drone is, but also because the drone is carrying 4K technology. It's such a high resolution. They're able to actually image with a great deal of quality that wasn't available, you know, five, 10 years ago. And uh, the rapid data collection that they can get uh, from these drones is, is sort of revolutionizing how they're approaching all sorts of field research. Yeah. And I, you know, that's sort of the kind of, in some ways, the obvious application. But I wonder if there's going to be something they're going to attach to these drones beyond just cameras that we haven't thought of yet, that's sort of also going to revolutionize the way we do science. Because um, really, what you're what you're providing with these drones is access to places that humans can't get to, because it's too dangerous, or too expensive, or, you know, it's too disruptive to that environment. But um, so I think it's really exciting. I look forward to drones replacing me doing any sort of microscopy ever again. 
<laughs> I don't know if we're I know there it's yet. Not happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that's a whole other story of vis- you know designing an artificial visual system. But uh, that's a topic for another episode. So that's it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own drone footage, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Gimbal Mechanic Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.